Hello, Smart Community friends, and welcome back to Mobility March. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great follow-up chat with Chad Ramage, founder of Accessibility in the City, an online mapping solution that helps support those with accessibility issues with navigation. You might remember I spoke with Chad about this time last year in episode 162 about inclusivity and accessibility in smart cities. In this episode, Chad tells us about how his experiences trying to find accessible places in his wheelchair sparked his interest in the accessible smart community conversation. And he tells us how that eventually led to his business accessibility in the city. We discuss the development of the MVP, the minimum viable product of the platform and the community engagement they've been doing with underserved groups, plus the opportunities and challenges of mapping accessibility points of interest like noise levels and accessible toilets, which aren't quite as simple as things like whether or not there is a ramp into a building. Chad tells us why accessibility is key to smart communities and what changed since we last spoke to him, plus how far he thinks we've come in the accessibility conversation in Australia. We've been in chat chat discussing emerging trends of renewable energy districts and accessibility being part of a COVID safe future, as well as how accessibility audits can help us all learn more about the accessibility of our businesses and local areas. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Chad. How are you today? Good afternoon, Zoe. Very well yourself? I am very well and I'm super excited to have you back on the podcast. And we were just talking about it. It was around this time last year that your episode, your first episode went out, which if we all remember March of 2020, most of our lives changed for many different, well, the same reason, but in many different ways. The um, massive handbrake of 2020. (laughs) Yes. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've been up to since then and also talking about uh, your work moving into the future, which is why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and part of Mobility March. So let's just jump straight into it. And for those who haven't listened, uh, and I was just going to seamlessly just tell people that your episode was 162 and we talked about inclusivity and accessibility in the smart city, which I was very, um, I really enjoyed that title. And we did talk a lot about accessibility uh, in the smart community space. And we talked about accessibility in the city, which is your company as well. So that was really exciting. So enough about me or enough about me talking and let's just jump in. Can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Yeah, so my name is Chad Ramage and I'm passionate about accessibility. So I've been in a wheelchair since about the age of 30 and I'm 38 as of three days time. And before that, I was able to walk uh, short distances, but safety wise just led to I really should get into a chair just for my own safety and not falling over everywhere. So I had this passion of being able to try and figure out if you can walk short distances, is it easier to take a few steps 
rather than walk the long way around to try and find a ramp and what's the easiest way for people to get from their point A to point B because it's very different for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess what sparked your interest in this combination of accessibility, which, you know, that makes sense, and then this technology and smart community space? Yeah, well, that was my initial investigation to actually try and find information. And I feel as though it's something that people would have been screaming out for before, but being that it just wasn't on top of my radar, I just always thought I just do my own thing and I fight my own way through. And I'm guessing everyone else does the same thing. And it wasn't until I actually started to try and figure out, well, how do you get wheelchairs like into a bathroom without it having child high chairs in there and buckets and mops and door widths not being to standard? Like, where is this information for me to be able to make a decision? And the more I looked for it, I just couldn't find it. (laughs) Even looking at local council websites as to, well, where are the accessible toilets? Where are the accessible car parks? If we know where we can park, we can then make that decision as to how we're going to go to this restaurant or is this even the right part of town to go to if there aren't any car parks or toilets there? So being that I couldn't find anything like that, it seemed a really sensible place to start and provide that information in an interactive online map. Businesses could then embed in their own websites and could provide that valuable information that just currently isn't available. Mm. And let's let's just jump into your business. And so, you know, this is how you came about building that uh, business accessibility in the city. So can you give us the 101 on your business? Like you've already told us a little bit already, but let's just go there so then people get it and then we can yeah, dive into some of the things you've been up to. Yeah, cool. The map itself is what hosts the majority of that accessible information content of here's the icons for where the toilets are, where car parks are, and things that will provide value. And on the other side of that coin is a, say, like a social media page for businesses to be able to promote how they're more accessible than their competitors and that information that they can then share on their social media profiles. So it was very much in MVP when we last spoke and where working on stage two of that now that we're hoping to have a big launch and some big news within the next two to three months. So there is going to be a very significant change in the map, in the business profile pages to be able to provide photos and show content and more easily be visible on the map as a business. And Some of that too that we have been working with accessible communities is looking at that demand for content for people with low vision, which a lot of the people trying to present this information at the moment don't have either. So we've had some great feedback from people with low vision and from communities that support those with low vision as to how that information can be displayed and navigated to. So there is going to be some big changes in the next few months to how we do present that information. Mm. And I mean, this is probably a fairly obvious question, but when you, so you've got your MVP, then 
I assume you went to the people that need to use this and then other people with disabilities, like you just mentioned, different groups. So then you would engage with those groups and get feedback on the MVP. Is that how you've kind of built this up? Yeah, definitely. And getting that consultation and feedback as to what everyone finds different and what everyone finds important. So initially, we had six to seven points of interest that, as a wheelchair user, I found really important to know if the stairs here, I can't go that way. If there's an accessible entry over here, this is the way I will go. But we're blowing that out to approximately 20 accessible points of interest that will start to include things like the tactile ground surfaces. If there are left or right-hand side ramps or railings on stairs to determine if people have strength on one side, how they can get up or how they can get down. And even working with a stroke rehabilitation centre of something I should have thought of initially when I launched of where there is even public seating, which I definitely needed when I was walking, you'd get from like point A halfway to point B and have a little bit of a break. But just through that consultation, having it flagged with me of, well, if we had seats, if we had this other content in there that would open it up to that wider audience as well. So the consultation has been really important. Absolutely. So yeah, even as you were talking there, I was was thinking about the different things that, yeah, like you said, and when you, sometimes these things, like they seem obvious when someone tells you and you're like, oh, why didn't I think of that earlier? But like the point is that you've asked the people and then you, you get that information. So it doesn't, you know, it's building that together with the community. And I think I say that because I think sometimes people get worried about asking different groups because they don't want any kind of, I don't know, negative, I don't know, backlash or something like that. Like, oh, but what you should have thought of this earlier, you're the consultant. But, you know, it's part of the process. And I think once we accept that, yes, there are certain things that we can include from the get-go because we've learned so much over the years, right? But we've learned that by including people in that conversation that are actually going to use these things or need certain things as well. So I think, yeah. And you don't start something like this without having broad shoulders either of <laughs> if, if people don't like something, they're certainly going to tell you about it. And whether that's something that is in scope at the moment that is going to be changed or might be part of a phase C approach, you need to be able to cop that criticism as well and know that a business and a platform like this is always going to be a moving feast and it's uh, the line in the sand can always change but as long as the community understand that we're all working towards the same thing uh, you generally have more positive feedback than negative Mm. yeah I was going to ask and maybe this is just me thinking that but you won't necessarily be able to solve everybody's problems in this you know even even maybe I don't know fully there may be certain things that are really unique that you may not be able to get that information on early What do you do with that? A great example of that is a discussion we had around noise levels. And if people kind of alerted or aren't comfortable in loud environments, how could we indicate noise level? Because from that business perspective, they don't want to advertise they're a high noise level venue, so people won't go there. And at different times of the day, you will have different amounts of people through those businesses as well. So to highlight noise reduction methods, do you say 
this location has added carpet to this area of the venue. There's wall linings, there's cushions on the lounges to try and absorb some of that noise pollution rather than going into a concrete room with steel chairs scraping everywhere that is going to be much louder than another location. And I just don't see it as simple as going into a room on a Friday night with a decibel meter going, oh, it's 75 decibels in here. We'll mark this as red. And then just having that business go offside with you and say, well, why would we pay for your (laughs) platform when it's telling everyone not to come here anyway? But to be able to have the measures to say, well, in this area, we've worked towards having a quieter environment by implementing these measures. Yeah, that's such a, I think, a brilliant way of getting that balance, right, where you people can then make the choice, oh, okay, yep, I've got those things, I know that that reduces noise, yep, yeah, I am going to go there. Or, you know, maybe it is just saying this is a beautiful, you know, concrete place with, you know, whatever, steel chairs or whatever, and people go, oh, that's, you know, maybe I don't mind noise and I like concrete or whatever, maybe I go there or, or whatever the case may be, but then you can make that decision. It's not... Yeah, it's how where you feel comfortable. So I think, yeah, that's interesting. And you could then say uh, quiet times are between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. or 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., which aren't around like the main lunch or dinner or breakfast periods. So if you would prefer a quieter time, even though it may be a louder atmosphere, these would be the best times for you to attend our establishment. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about, I can't remember which supermarket it was, but they had like a, I don't know, 10 a.m. on a Tuesday or something where they had quieter time. So I think they reduced the beeping and all that type of stuff as well. And I think they lowered lighting. They didn't have speaker announcements. And yeah, as you say, like the beeping at the checkouts maybe I think was reduced as well to try and lower that ambient noise that might put people off a bit. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Great conversation about noise. I was thinking when you were talking too, um, you could possibly do it in public space and maybe it's not part of your, you know, map or whatever, but you could pull in that data if certain areas have noise um, in, from open data platforms or whatever that you could then overlay more public space is what I was thinking. So maybe that this is a more quiet route or something like that. Yeah, if there are IoT sensors out that are monitoring those noise levels around those areas, if you know that between 4pm to 6pm is when everyone is out doing their exercise fitness regimes, that may not be the best time to go for a quiet stroll in the park. Yeah, and even I was thinking, um, sorry to stick on noise, I find it interesting because like with construction, there's certain levels that you need to you know, be within and that type of thing. So you would have sensors and that type of thing. So maybe then, yeah, that could be opened up so then people know, oh, okay, well, they, there's construction between seven and four or whatever the thing, so I won't go that way this day. Councils might even be monitoring that as a part of development applications as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so we've talked about accessibility in the city. We've talked a little bit about, well, a lot about noise, which I enjoyed, and community engagement essentially with particular groups that may be underserved, I shouldn't even say may, that are underserved in a lot of circumstances and then getting their feedback and bringing that in. And then also thinking about, I might not be able to solve everyone's problem in exactly the same way each time, but what are the things that we do have available that could be easily added in, like having yeah surfaces and all those type of things. So yeah, super interesting. Yeah. 
Okay, let's go. Um, we would have asked you this last time, and it doesn't matter if your answer has changed. What is a smart community to you? So a smart community to me is an accessible community. So one that has enough information for people to make a decision as to how or where or when they might want to go somewhere to engage, whether it be as a part of a community event or a family event or a work event, but just to give people that comfort and capability to uh, get out and be part of a community. I know for myself since, I don't know if the light rail was implemented in Newcastle when we last spoke, but I've got a great cheeky little car park now that I'm pretty sure I'm the only one in Newcastle that knows about it. And now everyone will. <laughs> and now I'm really easily able to just park there, get my wheelchair out, jump on the light rail and head in town. So where every other car park in Newcastle's full, I can just stop here, jump on the light rail, and then the city's completely open to me. So that then allows me to cruise down to the foreshore or go to restaurants or attend meetings in coffee shops just because I know where the best locations are, where the stops are, and have that capability to get around a lot easier. Now that I'm in a chair than I did when I was walking, I'd never be able to do that if I was still stubbornly trying to force myself to walk everywhere. So, yeah, I think a smart, accessible community is one that works together in helping each other get information and make those decisions. Yes, yeah. We were talking earlier and I was thinking about now that you're collecting this information that was, you know, most of this information was available somewhere, right, but it was just wherever it was everywhere, bringing this this information together so then people can actually make decisions about it. Have you found, and maybe it's too early to say, that people, if they have to share this information, they're willing to share it, but actually then they want to improve their accessibility because they're sharing this information? Out of, I think, a lot of companies and people operate on two thought processes, fear and greed. <laughs> so if we can have the appropriate information that shows how accessible something is, it will bring people to your business to spend money and you will then have their patronage. But if you have the fear of, well, we're advertising what's not accessible, then people won't know that you're on the map anyway and you won't have people attend. So <laughs> it's finding that middle ground of, okay, this part of the business may not be accessible yet, but this 90% is. So even pointing out if there is an accessible location near you, say if a really fantastic business provides a lot of great accessible uh, it, um, content or functionality in their business, but they don't have a toilet, if you know that there's one next door that you have a key that you can use and it's part of the organisational building, then you're still better to show all of this fantastic stuff that you're doing than not provide anything. <laughs> That's so interesting. And I was also thinking like once you've got this bank of you know businesses that where you can see, oh, yeah, great, this is an accessible business. Um, yes, they're actually getting more people in, which is great for them. But also then maybe as a business owner, I can go and learn from them. So then there's a bit of like this peer-to-peer -peer sharing because, you know, it doesn't all look the same, right? Like not every 
it's not a stock standard. I mean, there are obviously in public areas, we want standardization of accessible ramps and all those type of things. But when you go into a business, things may be a bit different um, for each business, right? And so it's it's actually, you know, what's that standard across across the board, but then it may look different in my business to your business, but actually both are accessible in different ways or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and that's and that's where it comes down to what is the level of accessibility. And because for a bathroom there could be 128 different things that determines if it's accessible or not. So you can really just advertise look, it's an accessible bathroom and it might have a right hand handle transfer or it might have a hand dryer that's air not paper kind of thing but it can come down to the point of well this door is uh, eight pounds per square inch of pressure to open so technically that's not accessible but in a pinch if you need to get in that door you're getting in that door whether it's asking for assistance or brute strengthening in uh, down to even the slip rating of tiles in a room and knowing how bathrooms can get if they're in a shared space or completely public anyway, or even the pan height, if you need to at least start at that baseline of it's been declared an accessible toilet, and then we just need to try and provide enough information that people can then say if they're going to try and go there or move on to the next location. Mm. I think I might have told this story last time, but a lady I did my Churchill Fellowship with while we were in the same year, she was called the Toilet Lady. Catherine Weber is her name, and uh, she didn't mind being called the Toilet Lady. But she basically was looking at taboos, public toilets uh, around the world. That was her topic. And, yeah, she was saying that um, she spoke to people, a whole range of different people. There's, there's like, public toilet advocates. There's, you know, people, wheelchair users, etc. She talked to this one lady who was a, a wheelchair user, and she could go into a bathroom but then couldn't turn around. So then, you know, that's not accessible. But then another one, she's got a four-year-old daughter. The space was too small for her daughter to be in there with her. And of course, she's not leaving her daughter on the outside. So there's a whole range of things that yeah, you, I guess you don't think about until you have to think about them, right? You feel like you're Zoolander, you get in, but you can only turn left. <laughs> yeah. You just can't do anything else in there. That's all you can do. <laughs> Which is just bananas. Like, yeah, it just seems crazy um, that we haven't worked that out. Another just random interesting toilet component would be during COVID, just watching online how things have been changing and lack of resources of what people are trying to get. Just the amount of my friends laughing and talking about having a bidet system on toilets now because it's too hard to get toilet paper at the time. And for people with like limited mobility, I know some people have had to get a bidet because physically using toilet paper is not something that they're capable of doing anyway. So it would be interesting to see if there are any of those kind of systems. I'm, I'm assuming not in public toilets in Australia. Maybe not Australia. Europe, for sure. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Toilet facts. Um, Catherine will love this. I'll have to tell her to listen. So let's talk about, so this time last year, uh, I think we probably would have spoken in around February and then we talked about it was going to be your birthday the day before this, the episode went out last time. And so it's around the same time this year. So can you tell me what's changed since we last spoke? 
Yeah, well, when we last spoke, I was expecting to have a week off for my birthday and was going to go holidaying, just locally go away for a few nights. And yeah, I took a week off from my day job at work and then just never went back. That's when New South Wales went into lockdown. And luckily, I'm in a role that I can work from home as long as I've got internet and a reasonable computer and a camera. I had everything I needed to work from home and it's really only been the last month or so we've started to look at actually going back on site. So my employer's been really good in that respect of knowing that I might be immunocompromised or have a really weak chest system that if I did get something significant like COVID, I'll have major issues with breathing and to be able to work from home for the last year has been fantastic in that respect, but that does also handbrake a, an accessible map that it is really me trying to drive people to go out into community and engage at events, and then there's no events for a year, and no one's really should be going out for a year, and if you are immunocompromised, then I'm certainly not going to be pushing you to go out and socialise either. So from an accessibility in the city perspective, it did get very quiet for a while there. But with the reopening of businesses and uh, districts of where government, whether it's state or local, are wanting people to go back out, it's really coming down to that COVID safe return of how do we get people back to the city and that's where I'm looking at it from that mobility perspective of how do we get people safely into the city (laughs) and where are the locations that they could go that they can try and have that one and a half metre space or are they going to have hand sanitizer for people when they get there? Do they have an accessible COVID safe check-in station? So I know some of my local establishments have got Uh, different level QR code scans. So if you're uh, at wheelchair height, yeah, yeah, you can actually scan at your level and not have to give someone your phone because the QR code can't scan from the angle that you're on. So even just providing that information to businesses, it's not something that everyone would even think about. It's just here's the table, the QR code stuck to the table, and it's two metres high. Information like that, yeah, has just uh, been something that we're looking at adding as well and that photo functionality so that you know what you are going to see when you get there. Yeah, no, I hadn't really thought about that. And even back in the day when, although it wasn't that long ago, I had a real issue with writing my details down in front of, you know, like everyone's writing on the same thing. Like it's a huge privacy issue particularly if you're well if you're anybody by yourself you maybe just want to go to the bar to have a drink by yourself or whatever and you're putting your you know your your address and your mobile number and I was going to say credit card details and pin number nearly but not really Uh, but then even where that is I hadn't really thought about you know going to a bar it's up on the bar and so you can't even access which you know seems like not a huge deal somebody could give it to you but then it's just that one extra barrier where it's just like oh again Yeah, it is scary for a lot of people who have that privacy perspective of, well, I'd probably prefer on this sheet of 50 names, everyone on there not have my phone number and how long I'm going to be here for and (laughs) who I'm meeting with. 
because people could just even take a photo of that really like you know and yeah I'm glad that we moved away but it took too long to be honest in my humble opinion so talking about moving out of you know these COVID times which I feel very um, privileged and fortunate to be able to even say that you know being in Queensland and you being in New South Wales although uh, we're still having you know outbreaks here or there but yeah definitely I feel very lucky that we can even talk about post-COVID. I've been on a couple of calls with Americans and and people in Barcelona and in the UK, and it's just, yeah, it's not a conversation we're having yet. But if we are talking about Australia moving out of COVID times and how do we make sure that, you know, this new wave of tourism is accessible for people? This is something I've been pushing for probably the last two to three months because we knew that as everything started to open up, people would want to know where they can go and how they can get there. And it has. It's just been difficult to start to trigger that thought process of what is accessible tourism and how do we get enough information on the locations that people want to go or is it even a thought process that companies and organisations are having? So I've been... I've actually been having a look at how I might be able to target, say, whether it's caravan and camping style grounds, because where I've stayed in locations like that previously, there's been fantastic accessible cabins, car parks, because I guess caravan parks are initially targeted at the grey nomads or aged people who are travelling there. And, uh, and it's all generally pretty flat, well-gutted, well-cooked, inverted and with pretty good bathrooms so that's something that i've been thinking about and looking to target how we can promote accessible locations like that but even getting hotel chains and uh, people like that on board to say what do you consider your accessibility in your rooms and is it something that we can start to look at targeting and promoting but there's there's a long way to go with even trying to get councils on board to say yes you're saying you've got an accessible event yes you've got an accessible party in a park or something but how are people getting there where are they parking where are the bathrooms how many people are accommodated for at these events if it is ticketed do people need to get in early and it's that accessible component of information that I'm still finding lacking that I'm trying to get some of that information weaned out as well. It's such an um, important topic for mobility in general because it's that little place over there might be accessible, but if you can't get there, if you can't go to the bathroom, if you can't yeah, park close by or accessible public transport there or whatever the case may be, then it's not going to, it's all well, it's like I'm just imagining this like, thing on stairs that you have to get to this event and it's like oh it's so accessible up here and you're like well yeah that's great but I can't get there which unfortunately is probably not even a a, a joke it's probably happened even just curb cuts at the corner of a road to say oh sweet there's a crossing there but there's also a gutter so you can't even cross the road to get where you want to go anyway (laughs) yeah I think I was, I think it was a, a podcast episode or, or an article or something. The early accessibility activists in New York City, I think it was New York, and they'll basically go on around and smashing up like curbs because 
they were like, well, I can't use this otherwise and that you have to go to a driveway, which is really unsafe and all these types of things. And, you know, that might seem a bit, I don't know, too far or whatever in inverted commas, but actually it made action. And I, I found it really fascinating to, again, another thing you don't think about until you need to, which is crazy. It's probably the complete uh, inappropriate term for it, but accessible terrorism. <laughs> Destroy what doesn't work. Destroy what doesn't work. Make them rebuild. <laughs> How far do you think we've come? Uh, I would say extremely far. There's There have been a lot of changes, even locally where I am and when I travel. So many more things are now accessible and I don't even think it's been through a major push legislatively. I think a lot of governments and businesses are just implementing things to be accessible for everyone. It's the old thing of if it's accessible for everyone, like you're not taking away from anyone. So if you build something new with stairs and you're literally making it unaccessible straight up, but if you are building it with everyone in mind, then everyone can go there. So it was interesting over in the UK where it's actually built into their development application system that if you want to upgrade a room at a location like at a whether it be at a pub or a restaurant or something, if you're putting in to upgrade something and there isn't an accessible bathroom there, it then needs to be included in that development application to make it accessible until you can afford to make your business accessible for everyone, then you're not going to slap a second story on or re-carpet or redo this room over here. So some countries are starting to force that accessibility component on people who don't want to do it. And that is going to make things great in the long run. But I was even chatting to a business owner last night that said, well, that might just put the whole business on hold, that they just won't do any upgrades then because they can't afford to put a $30,000 bathroom in or a $60,000 bathroom in. So it's it's still going to be that double-edged sword, I think, of how do we make things accessible yet continue modernising what may be starting to become aged and decrepit. Mm. Putting those things in then drives accessibility, but then if it halts anything happening altogether, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, and the amount of grants out there, I'm sure there are even infrastructure grants through at least local governments that if you want to improve accessibility to a building, whether it's a co-contribution kind of thing, I have heard of that happening with buildings locally as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about toilets. We've talked a lot about noise, the mobility, parking, etc., which are all very important things. Let's talk about emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough. Yeah, not from a accessibility kind of perspective, but I actually think emerging trend-wise, renewable energy. I think in Newcastle, I think there's actually talk of being an entire renewable energy district that's um, going to start to be spun up, really partnering in with smart cities infrastructure as well to look at whether it's generators or solar as to how that information pairs in and how it can help power the entire city while working with innovators as well. So that's something that 
may have been on everyone else's radar, but it <laughs> certainly hasn't been on mine that I'm keen to get my head across a bit more. I know I've slapped some solar panels on my house and I've gone from a $500 power bill a month to I've literally got a check in front of me now for $200. So I'm being paid for power now. From an accessibility perspective, I think that COVID safe return to cities that we were just talking about, I think needs to be really higher on people's radars and how we make funding available for that. And I think a lot of that money for trying to get that reactivation occurring is being stuck in councils and not really making its way to the ground level as to where the money's needed to implement some of this change. So seeing some of that money working its way down to the innovators and entrepreneurs from whether it be state, government level, wherever that money is, I think we need to start seeing more of that on the ground. Yeah, and I think that would be really interesting to see how we do, you know, I've seen lots of grants and things around, but yeah, trickling down to making stuff happen. It's always a challenge, I think, and and working out what's going to provide the most impact as well. I think that would be really interesting. And there's lots of talk about regional areas, which I think um, in some cases may be more accessible than cities in some some cases, if you can drive, I suppose. Um, you've got wider footpaths and those type of things. But then from a establishment perspective, business perspective, maybe they are, maybe they do need a bit more support in making sure you've got the facilities available. And again, I'm just going off my very limited data set, you would know a lot more than me. I guess if we're, like, if we're asking people to go to regional areas, you have, have you looked at anything around that with the tourism kind of lens? It's very interesting when you do go for a wheel up a main street of any small town. It's it's usually got pretty reasonable footpaths and inverts and crossings and things as you move out from the larger cities. But it's even just from a weather and infrastructure perspective, these locations need to be prepared for rain, hail, shine, flood, whatever might come through the city. So it's not as easy as just saying, well, every shop should have a ramp into it. Snap, snap, come on, we've got a bit of money kicking around there. You should be making every location accessible. But just for common sense sake, some areas need to have a step into it. So then it comes down to, is it possible for businesses to get grants to even have an accessible ramp that if someone wants to come in, can a ramp be put down to then come in and explore a shop or explore a business? But I must admit, I found it really interesting when I was in Adelaide two years ago that up one of the main malls, I purposefully was looking at every business and every business had a ramp into it unless it was settled down like down a flight of stairs or up a flight of stairs every business or shop that i went to had a ramp up into it so i found that really interesting that next time you do go for a bit of a stroll up your main street try and just consciously have a look at businesses and see how accessible you think they might be Mm, that's kind of getting in and then yeah cruising around i suppose again you've got to look at how wide things are and that type of thing yeah, I, I grew up in a small town and I remember on a Friday afternoon, we had a choice, like we had Friday afternoon activities, so you could choose what you did. And me and another lady, we used to go and talk to people 
who were in like either elderly or had a disability or and we used to just go and chat to them for half an hour and drink tea and eat biggies, which was I thought was great. And I was talking to a lady, um, she had uh, Parkinson's disease and she had a mobility scooter and she raised this issue with me and, again, nothing, I, I was 15, I think, I didn't really think about it. And, one, we, we decided that we were going to get a wheelchair and cruise around and see what we could, which shops we could and couldn't get into. Anyway, we weren't allowed to do that because it was, which I didn't understand at the time, but it was going to be seen to be, you know, stirring the pot or whatever. Renegade hoodlum kids. Yeah. Trying trying to race around in wheelchairs, running people over. <laughs> and like, you know, like that we would then also be raising this issue of things. So anyway, that was my experience of being like activism, being pushed back on activism, which I didn't really comprehend at the time, to be honest. But yeah, it was just interesting. I just thought of that story when you were talking. Ironically, I had some email communication from a staff member at a council near me a fortnight ago, and they actually wanted to do an accessibility challenge for their town. So to partner with a, a wheelchair provider to actually give five or six wheelchairs for councillors and go for a wheel through the town to see if they could achieve what they wanted to achieve for the day. And I haven't heard if that's happened yet or what the outcome may have been. It would be great just to get some feedback on how the day goes and what issues arose that they weren't aware of previously. Mm, yeah, and accessibility, I guess you, and I don't know if this is a thing, I assume it is, an accessibility audit, but then making it a bit of a, a challenge. I know I talked to one of my colleagues in San Francisco and that was her role for, I think it was, can't remember even the name of the thing, but anyway. She had hurt her, she'd broken her ankle and so she was on a mobility scooter, kind of coincidentally, but also she was going to do that accessibility audit and, um, yeah, so she did that. She had to do it the way she would actually have to do it um, and so, yeah, she got some really interesting findings from that. And it would be quite good to see, like, depending on the town too, because as you say, where I grew up, it was a very steep main street that my parents had to kind of think that, depending on what we were going to do in town, what end of the street you parked on, because it would be too steep to try and walk up the hill and if there were cracks in the footpath kind of thing, which it's only taken 30 years, but the main street's been resurfaced, re-footpathed, refilled, and now a lot more of the businesses are accessible and the pathing's been fixed, but it's still pretty hard to fix a massive hill in your main street. Mm. Yes. And I guess it's like then, well, having that information available for people so then they know, you know, maybe they do have to drive every, you know, park at one end or whatever and if they're going to the post office, but actually they won't be able to get back up the hill to their car. So maybe they do have to drive around or. So if you're going to get your hair done one day and do some clothes shopping, park at the bottom. If you want to go to the post office and grab some groceries, park at the top. Well, it's been so great to chat with you, Chad. I really appreciate you coming back onto the podcast and sharing a bit of an update. And yeah, I'm really excited for you to be part of Mobility March. And we'll definitely have to catch up. I really want to come down to Newcastle when things are a bit 
when you have more confidence in booking flights that a border may not snap closed and lose all of the monies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those type of things, yes, for sure. And yeah, not having to do two weeks of hotel quarantine, etc. But I am looking at coming down at some point. So anyway, we'll let you know. And uh, actually, I need to ask you one more question. How can people connect with you? So LinkedIn would be the best for me if we just do a search for Chad Ramage or my business email of info at accessibility in the dot city, which looks very confusing because it's a dot city domain, not dot com. I have the same. So mine is mysmart.community and then I'll be like and dot com. Is that a dot org or a dot com? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, no, it's dot community. It's all the rage. But yes, no, and, and your what's your uh, website? It is accessibilityinthecity.com.au. I did want to go down the path of accessibility in the dot city, but I don't think even search engine optimization or SEO is really up to crazy domains yet. So I'm still just keeping it simple of the dot com.au. Nice. You can upgrade later. That's it. <laughs> well, thanks again, Chad. It's been so great to chat with you. I better let you go. We've talked for a long time, but it's been great. And I um, I really enjoy every time we have a conversation. Thank you again for your time, Zoe. It's always a pleasure. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcasts. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.